Hi, my name's Tori and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Letitia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work. Hi, my name is Lydia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in a team and solve conflict. Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things. Hello, my name is Liz Crow. And I'm Jesse Spur. And welcome to another episode of Five Things, where today we're looking at five things we all need to know about the liver. And we're welcoming Olivia Cullen, who is the clinical nurse consultant for hepatology at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. Welcome, Olivia. Hi, guys. Nice to be here. It's awesome to have you. We always like to get started with knowing a little bit of your backstory around nursing, how you got into it, um, what's sort of woven your way to being a single organ specialist nurse. Yeah, right. Um, I suppose it really starts with that I never really wanted to be a nurse. Um, I actually wanted to be a wildlife park ranger. Um, (laughs) But I've got a really bad allergy to ant bites. And I know you might understand this, Liz, because I heard one of the previous podcasts that one of your children does. Yeah. Um, Anyway, after a couple of really close calls, my mother said, this is ridiculous. The safest place for you to be is in a hospital. You're doing nursing. So that's how it happened. Before I knew it, I was enrolled uh, at QUT. I think we were the first degree course to actually go through. Um, So I graduated in uh, 1993 from QUT and I've actually now been at the Royal for 30 years. So I've had a couple of years away. I worked overseas for a year in London and uh, uh, at one stage, you know, wasn't very happy in nursing, was trying to leave nursing. So I started a science degree and, um, and I finished that. Um, obviously that didn't turn out because I'm still nursing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then all of a sudden um, I moved around a lot uh, in the medical wards, worked a really long time on the IV service, too long. Mm. Um, but the advantage of that job was that I moved around the hospital and got to know different places. And then when my kids started school, I really thought I really need to find a place that I'm really happy. You have to go to work and love what you do. Yeah. And so I really had to make an effort to find out where that place was. I applied for a job that was asking for a research assistant and that was with the nurse practitioner up in the liver clinic at the time. So I think that was 2012 and that was just the foot in the door. Over the next couple of years, I was asked to come back and cover long service leave, long-term sick leave and eventually after a few retirements, I was successful in getting a full-time CNC role. Um, Fantastic place to work, absolutely love my job Um, and I think I'll... It, it probably will see me out. Yeah. <laughs> that's so such an interesting journey uh, to, to get to where you are. And I guess that's what we often try and talk about at this podcast is that very few of us at the start of our career end up working where we think we will or where we want to. Like mm. it's, it is a real journey, isn't it, in health? Yeah, it really is. It, I mean, you just don't know. You go to university and, and you end up nursing. You don't really know what that means. And certainly in the beginning, my first job was in Wattlebury. So it was the height of the AIDS epidemic. And as really young nurses, we were thrown into this unbelievable scenario, really. Um, back then, Wattlebury was really basically a palliative care ward. Yeah. Um, so it took me a long time to realise that nursing wasn't just looking after dying people. Yeah. Um, 
it's it's very very varied. There's so many different things that you can do with nursing. Okay, I'm really t- curious. I was just reflecting on the drive-in. Uh, the liver, more than anything else, is probably that organ that everyone talks about, particularly on the weekend. You know, like, <laughs> oh, my liver's taken a <laughs> the damage. Yeah. yeah, like, you know, we talk about it like people actually understand about the liver, but just even looking at your five things, I think there's so many more things that we have to understand. So your number one is you need a liver to live and you need a well-functioning liver to live well. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, that's right. So I suppose we should start with that the liver is an essential organ and it does a lot of things. Um, It does over 500, it has over 500 vital roles. Um, So if we look at the anatomy a little bit, um, it's the it's the body's largest internal organ Um, and it's unlike other organs it actually has a dual blood supply so it it receives 30% of its blood supply via the hepatic arteries and this is oxygen rich blood but it receives most of the blood supply from the digestive tract via the, the portal vein and this is nutrient rich oxygen poor blood at any given time, the liver's processing about 13, 13% of our total blood volume, um, which is a lot. And al- although it's not considered part of the digestive system, it has an essential role in digestion. So everything we consume ends up in the liver. All of that nutrient-rich blood leaves the intestine via the portal vein and in a healthy liver this significant amount of blood flows nice and easily through the liver and over the functional liver cells that are the hepatocytes. And that's where all the magic happens. In the hepatocytes, the blood is filtered, nutrients are reorganised into energy forms that the body can use, important proteins are synthesised. It's the storage organ for a number of micronutrients Glucose is stored as glycogen for when it's needed later. Another important role is that it removes toxins from the blood. And after the blood is processed, it either leaves the liver via the hepatic veins where it's distributed to the rest of the body for use, those substances are, or the wastes are excreted via a system of ducts. A very important function of the liver is the production of bile. So the bile transports waste um, out of the liver via a system of ducts, ends up in the, um, the, the CBD, which then dumps the waste into the duodenum and the waste are excreted via the faeces. So in summary, the liver does a lot and we need the liver tissue to be healthy for it to work well. That is so much information. Like I was madly taking notes then. I had no clue that the liver does so much. So it, it's fascinating, isn't it? We talk about the liver all the time, like it's the thing we need to worry about when we drink. <laughs> but it, it's actually got multiple f- important functions right across the body, hasn't it? Yeah, it really does. Um, and you certainly see health consequences when your liver isn't working well. The thing to sort of hammer home there is Olivia went through about 20 things that the liver does out of the 500 yeah, essential that's right. functions. And, and I mean, that a lot of that is drilling down into the individual proteins that are essential that it synthesizes as well. But that's we don't, we might need to do a 10-part <laughs> series on the liver to get into the that level. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to try and summarize some of that right now, actually. 
Can you you're, – I might need some help from you guys. So essentially it's got a role in filtering blood. It's got a role in taking, you know, proteins and nutrients from the intestine uh, and creating bile which – and all of those things then go on to create feces like your poo. Um, but it's also storing and it also sounds like it's metabolising some of our proteins to do other jobs. So, yeah, um, we've got filtration, metabolism, excretion and storage, really, the main functions of the liver. All right. Well, that's a great way to, to summarise it. Your number two is early detection of liver disease is the key to preventing irreversible liver damage. Right. So this is really important, understanding what we mean by irreversible damage so if we look at what causes the damage in the first place, and I'll go into later about uh, different liver diseases, but put simply, anything that harms the hepatocytes um, will eventually cause, to cause liver dysfunction. So whatever the cause of the damage, um, the way the liver responds to the damage, it has an innate immune response so stellate cells release a fibrin-like material and they lay this down in between the hepatocytes. Now, over time, if the damage keeps occurring, this fibrin material takes over the space of the healthy hepatocytes. And so what you get over time is less and less functional liver tissue. In effect, the hepatocytes die this fibrin-like material causes permanent scarring and the liver starts to not work well. Now, what we, when a person has um, this state of disease, this scarring on the liver, this state is called cirrhosis. It's now an irreversible state. So basically the liver's become stiff and hard because of this kind of fibrin material depositing scar tissue throughout it. That's right. The, over time, this scarring actually changes the architecture of the liver, so the whole shape of the liver changes, and it certainly changes the way blood th flows through the liver, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. All right, so bear in mind, not a nurse, uh, really just blown away by this whole, uh, you know, discovery of all the sorts of things that the liver does. So let me see if I'm getting this straight. Essentially, a healthy liver has got a, a lovely filtration system through it. If you keep harming your liver, you know, whether it's intentional or unintentional, then over time that becomes really stiff and constricted. It's irreversible and so it, it just simply can't do all the jobs that it needs to do. That's exactly right. And I guess the other reflection that ties back to the first one is I'm trying to think of other vital organs that have forward flow through them via venous circulation and heart's the only one that jumps to mind is am I missing no I think one? that's right yeah so there's a there's a complexity of blood flow through the organ that when you start talking about disrupted architecture it's a quick spiral into problems isn't it yeah that's right so then once a person is cirrhotic we think about well what are the, what are the consequences for that person now, the first consequence is that they're at higher risk of the liver cancer that's associated with liver disease. And this cancer is called hepatocellular carcinoma, or HCC for short. Um, this is a, a bad cancer. 
if caught early, it's curative. But because cirrhosis is an asymptomatic state, most people don't know they're cirrhotic. Um, they can develop a cancer. Um, so they don't know they're cirrhotic, then they develop a cancer. And we, we usually find these cancers in later stages. Um, when we find them in later stages, we don't have curative options. We've got um, treatments that extend life, but basically the median survival for a person with advanced stage liver cancer, um, we quote the five-year median survival is less than less than 16% of patients will be alive at the five-year mark with advanced HCC. I'm really curious about this. So you can your liver can be really sick, but you don't have any symptoms. Well, it's not that simple. So there's different stages of cirrhosis. Yep. So when we're saying that it's asymptomatic, it's early cirrhosis. You've got the liver damage, which is irreversible, which now means you're at risk of liver cancer and you should be in a cancer surveillance program. The other consequence of being told that you have cirrhosis is that you shouldn't drink alcohol ever again in your life. So there's the two things. You should be enrolled in a liver cancer surveillance program and you should not be given, drinking alcohol, which is hard for a lot of people to do and, and hear. Um, that's a massive lifestyle change. They're the two main things that a person with a new diagnosis of cirrhosis is told. So, so given sort of early stages of cirrhosis are asymptomatic um, to the person with the liver inside them, yeah. I, I'd imagine there's, there's a couple of things, ways that when, when we talk about early detection of it, a lot of it's going to be maybe incidental when someone's sick with something else and they get a blood test and we see some derangement in liver markers. And then I guess the other is just comprehensive GP screening when you get to a certain age or you have a certain lifestyle of risk factor. Exactly right. So this is where the GP is so important. Um, so a common referral we'll get into the liver clinic is investigation for um, deranged liver function tests. So a patient's gone to their GP just for a regular checkup. The GP's done some bloods and noticed that the patient has a raised ALT, AST, ALP, GGT. What's going on? I'm going to refer this patient in for a hepatologist to review. So when they come to clinic, um, there's two main points of that meeting. First of all, um, we'll work out what the cause, if there is a liver disease and what that cause might be. So they'll be sent away with a panel of, of, of screening bloods to be done. And then, and probably the most important thing that we do in the liver clinic is we've got to get the call right whether or not they're already cirrhotic. A diagnosis of cirrhosis includes a fibrous scan result. A fibrous scan is, is a relatively new technology. We used to have to do liver biopsies Thank goodness for the patient, it's been replaced by fibrous scan. The fibrous scan is like a, an ultrasound-like probe. The nurses do them in clinic. It takes five minutes and it gives us a score and that score gives us a measurement of stiffness of the liver. And generally, roughly saying, a score over 12, we're happy to say someone looks like they possibly are cirrhotic. But fibrous scan al alone is not enough. They use that in combination then with an ultrasound or any sort of um, scan that shows the morphology of the liver. So a cirrhotic liver is nodular. It's a lumpy, bumpy, nodular, rough liver. And then the third bit of information that really gives the clue to a person possibly have cirrhosis is their platelet count. So 
Most cirrhotics are mildly, if not significantly, thrombocytopenic, so we're looking for a low platelet count. So in combination, the clinician will use the fibrous scan, the ultrasound and the platelet count and then make the call. So, so what we hope is to get patients before they progress to cirrhosis. Um, and, and it's probably a good time to talk about maybe the three most common causes of liver disease and then how we treat them in the liver clinic. So worldwide, the three most common causes of liver disease are excess alcohol, fatty liver and viral hepatitis. So if we can look at those individually, if a patient comes in with deranged LFTs and we recognise it's because of their alcohol consumption, our role is to educate them. Uh, in some cases, um, there might be, it might be more than that. This is an addiction issue and we'll refer to local alcohol and drug, drug groups um, and we may need to involve an addiction specialist. Um, so that's, that's the treatment for that, for that person. And, and if they're not cirrhotic at all, um, there is definitely a really good – it's a really good time to address those issues and, and prevent cirrhosis. If a person comes in and we work out that the reason is because they've got fatty liver – and fatty liver is the new big liver disease – um, it's a massive problem worldwide because of the obesity crisis. Um, so a lot of referrals are because of fatty liver. And if we get them early enough, we would sort of say this person has mild fatty liver. We'll educate them. We set weight loss goals. There's a huge um, improvement that occurs just with a 10% weight loss. Um, we may have to refer them to um, an endocrinologist for management of their diabetes um, but if caught early and we address these issues, a person presenting to the clinic with mild fatty liver um, can usually be referred back to the GP and the GP can manage lifestyle modifications with, with that person. And then thirdly, worldwide, a very common cause of liver disease is viral hepatitis. And when we're talking about they we're talking about viral hepatitis C and viral hepatitis B. Viral hepatitis C is the virus you get from uh, injecting drug use mostly. Um, hepatitis C is now very, very easy to treat. When I first started, it was an interferon-based treatment and that's actually where the, uh, the liver nurse need originated from. These patients would be on treatment for 6 to 12 months, have a high um, symptom burden because of the interferon and the nurses manage them on treatment. And in 2016... These miracle drugs were PBS listed, the direct acting antivirals. And now hepatitis C is one tablet once a day for 12 weeks with a 99% cure rate. Wow. So no longer needs nurses to supervise that treatment. Yeah. Now, can I ask a dumb question? Like, it makes sense to me that if you've got a problem with obesity, you know, there's some lifestyle issues that you can get a fatty liver. I understand that there's viral reasons. But why is alcohol so bad for the liver? Alcohol accelerates the way the fat is also deposited in the liver. But al alcohol on its own – so alcohol works by making fatty liver worse. But on its own, alcohol is a toxin. The liver does not like it. Um, it really struggles to process it and it's harmful. It's the way that the alcohol is broken down is it has a harmful effect on the liver. 
Yeah, I think I think the liver, um, before it does anything else, it tries to deal with alcohol. So everything else takes a back seat to it trying to deal with alcohol. And we certainly see liver function really improve when people give up alcohol. So the other important uh, viral hepatitis is hepatitis B. Uh, and we have wonderful medications to treat hepatitis B. Unlike hepatitis C, we can't cure hepatitis B, but we have wonderful medications that suppress viral replication and stop it from causing any more damage. Um, so patients will come in, we will detect that they have viral hepatitis B. We, don't, we won't necessarily treat them right at the beginning. There's a certain time to start treatment, but we'll monitor these patients. And when we see that, um, that it's a time to treat, we'll treat them with these medications. And, and basically treatment, the treatments for viral hepatitis B are anti-cancer treatment pa- treatments. So interesting that we can do so much of our viral stuff, but that lifestyle stuff, it yeah. comes down to the individual, doesn't it? Your number three is compensated cirrhosis is very different from decompensated cirrhosis. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> right. This is where it starts to get interesting. Sounds like a Dr. Seuss. <laughs> <laughs> so compensated cirrhosis is generally early cirrhosis. The person can have the person has the liver scarring, which means that they're at the high risk of liver cancer and they're told to give up alcohol. But generally, there's still a significant amount of healthy liver tissue remaining, which means that person really can live a relatively normally healthy life. Their life expectancy is similar to someone without cirrhosis. As long as they are not continuing to harm their liver and they do all of the right things, so they give up alcohol, they keep a healthy, they keep at a healthy weight, they do some exercise, they, um, that person stays relatively healthy and mostly won't have any significant health complications because of their disease. However, and despite some efforts, some people's disease will get worse and that's because there's genetic factors at play. At work. And then for other people... They can't give up alcohol. They can't lose weight. Um, there are. It's probably worth mentioning there are also some um, rare genetic diseases, um, and there's some autoimmune diseases that people have that make it impossible, really, for their diseases not to progress. But what we see is now cirrhosis with portal hypertension come into play, and we spoke a little bit about this before about how the liver changes and becomes stiff. So now what we've got is all of that blood coming through the portal vein into the liver and it no longer moves easily through the liver to be processed. And I I say to the patients, your liver's now acting like a dam. All of that blood is hitting resistance. And of course, it's got to find somewhere to go. And that creates problems. So this stage really is is progression of disease, the person has now cirrhosis with early signs of portal hypertension. And again, the patient themselves might know this is happening. This is something that we can see on ultrasound. We can see a little bit of fluid around the liver. We can see the spleen enlarging and we can see the portal vein dilating. Patients might develop a little bit of a peripheral edema. That might be something that they do notice. And at this stage, if we catch this early, um, we can sometimes manage it and we can improve this. So with oral diuretics, with really 
paying attention to the high-protein, high-energy, low-salt diet, we can sometimes optimise a patient and get them back into a compensated stage. However, most of the time this really does get worse and when it gets worse, this leads to decompensation events and these are the type of things that cause a patient to end up in the ED. Right. So, so I think I guess some of the common associated decompensation events or or chronic progressions decompensated liver failure that jump to mind in those ED events are so like bleeding esophageal varices, significant ascites, even development of pleural effusions, liver infections. Um, what, what else yeah. am I missing? Because there's a, there's a whole suite of these things, and there, and this is I guess classically what we think about uh, about liver emergencies. Yeah, so you're exactly right. So if we just if we hit on the three big ones that bring a patient into the ED, the most common one is large volume ascites. So you've seen these patients, you know what they look like. They're usually um, skinny, skinny, mostly men with great big hard distended bellies. Um, now, a complication of that is it may or may not have a bacterial infection in it. So they'll do a diagnostic tap in ED and work that out very quickly. The third event that happens is hepatic encephalopathy. Now, this is a really interesting uh, consequence of decompensated cirrhosis. In a healthy liver, we process ammonia really well. When the liver is scarred, when it's not working, and with all that blood shunting, the ammonia ends up in the brain and it causes causes cognitive impairment to patient, to people. Hepatic encephalopathy is awful. It's awful for the patient, even when they're at home and not in the ED, they've always decompensated patients have fluctuating cog- cognitive impairment because of the encephalopathy. It makes them angry, upset, miserable, very forgetful. Wives report that their husband's personality has changed. So it's a very big quality of life issue. When they're in the ED, Um, They've got significant encephalopathy. Um, Left untreated, the patient becomes unconscious and can die from the encephalopathy. Um, And the treatment, which seems crazy, is actually to get their bowels working. So we'll put um, nasogastric or sometimes rectal tubes in and we will flush lactulose through the patient just to get their bowels moving and excrete the ammonia out via the faeces. It's the most glamorous nursing... um nursing patient allocation that you can ever get. It's a punami, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, it's, I feel sorry for the nurses on the wards when they... <laughs> yeah. and, it, and it's horrible for the patient as they start to actually get better, as the ammonia levels start to come down, but we're, we're continuing to push this for quite some time. Yeah, it's, it's an awful treatment for patients. And, and patients that are even at home, um, they're on regular lactulose. It's the, it's the number one medication that they complain about. It tastes awful. And it also means that they have to be careful when they leave the house, that their bowels can move suddenly. Um, so one of our the most common conversations the liver clinic nurses have over the phone is trying to manage um, patients' lactulose intake. Um, and usually they know, they get really, they get good at knowing that it's up to them to really titrate their dose because the goal is to get two to three good bowel motions a day to prevent encephalopathy. So we've spoken about large volume ascites, encephalopathy, and the third main event that happens is 
gastrointestinal bleeding. And mostly this is bleeding from esophageal varices. Um, the varices form in the esophagus um, because, again, of the portal hypertension. Um, and these varices spontaneously can burst at any time. And this can be a terminal event. So decompensation events always happen after hours too. Yeah, right. So it's, it's not uncommon to come to work um, and there's, there's six inpatients that have come in overnight that weren't there when you went home. And, uh, and we'll often get uh, into hospital um, patients. So a, a common scenario is a patient being flown from Bundaberg Hospital that's had a variceal bleed. Um, they need to be treated very quickly. Um, so a lot of those patients end up in ICU. So then on the wards, the nurses are getting this step-down patient from uh, a variceal bleed. And that's not technically from Bundaberg. You're just saying regionally. We don't have – it's not nothing about Bundaberg. No, no. Don't take that personally, it's Bundaberg. the rum. Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes, Re regional centres definitely need an ICU to, yeah. to save those patients. Yeah. Before we get into our number four, I have to say, Olivia, I think you've got the hardest, uh, like most tricky words to string together in a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Your number four is the decompensated liver patient on the ward is at risk of sudden further deterioration and good, you know, good medical care, good care in general is really dependent on good nursing care. It really is. So the decompensated patient is an unstable patient. Anything can happen. First and foremost, these patients are very frail people. Liver disease in this stage has a way of causing sarcopenia. So these patients have lost their muscle mass and they're very frail. They look much older than they actually are. So keeping in mind, you've got a frail patient you also may have a cognitively impaired patient because they've got encephalopathy. And we're also probably giving this patient treatments that means that they're toileting all of the time and certainly up through, their night, up through the night we're giving them lactulose and we're giving them diuretics. So you've got a very unstable patient and they need to be closely supervised. So certainly in bays near the nursing station with close supervision. So I'm guessing, you know, one of the big risks for these people is falls. Yep, it is. Um, they do fall, unfortunately. So I think that is the number one thing to realise when you see them. There's lots of other complicated things that are going to happen, but safety is the number one thing we should be thinking about. The other bit of basic nursing care is they have poor skin integrity. So really, you know, we all do this, the basic nursing care Please check any lines that they've got in. Make sure they're not causing a pressure area. And infection is the absolute enemy of the decompensated patient. We don't want them getting a hospital-inquired inf infection because of a, a, an IV cannula that should have been changed. So, so check those three things. Check, recognise the patient's frail. Um, you've, just, you've just seen them. See what lines they've got in. That, that's your very first line of nursing assessment. So Olivia, just bearing in mind that when we get these inpatients in an addiction is often a big problem, how much should the bedside nurse also be aware of withdrawals? Yeah, great question, Liz. Um, often these patients are in withdrawal. Um, so it's really important that there's an alcohol withdrawal scale there and that medicines have been charted appropriately. And I guess in practice, I've often found that that 
can be quite an adjustment. Decompensated liver failure, dealing with hepatic encephalopathy, coexisting and influencing some of the um, scale, alcohol withdrawal scale assessments. So often they'll have different pathways and they'll also have uh, not – shouldn't usually be prescribed diazepam. They should have um, oxazepam as the alternative for their um, alcohol withdrawal pharmacological management. That's right. Oxazepam is the drug of choice. Um, and we really need to still be careful with that, that we don't over-sedate the encephalopathic patient. Perfect. <clears throat> Let's go back to really focus in on our point – what else can the bedside nurse, you know, what do we need to be vigilant about and what, what other things should they be looking for? What is really important in the management, the medical management of these patients is ac accurate record keeping. So the doctors really rely on firstly early morning daily ways going on. That's crucial to how, we tit how, the, how the doctors titrate diuretics whether or not the person diuretics are not working, the person may need a large volume paracentesis. And, and just overall managing fluid overload, we need to know what their weight is doing. The other important bit of information is the stool chart. So we need a stool chart that has recorded frequency, colour and form. And this gives us some idea about um, how well we're managing the hepatic encephalopathy. Is the lactulose doing what it should? We want frequent bowel motions. And also we need to know if there's any blood in the stool. Is the patient still bleeding? So that is really important. And thirdly, an accurate OBS chart. Keep We, we want to make sure that this patient doesn't have an underlying, underlying brewing infection. Um, so temperature is very important. So ideally in the morning when the medical team are there, we know what the patient's weight is compared to yesterday. Trends in their weight are very important. We know what the bowels have done overnight um, and we hopefully know that they're afebrile. I'd also add, I guess, to the bowel charting is fluid balance charting. Like this is a patient that should have very strict fluid balance charts completed. Yeah, I probably should mention the kidney function a little bit. The kidney function really goes out in sympathy with the liver. We really most of the time, once the liver's not working well, the kidney is not working well either. And it's a real balancing act to how we improve things. One of the things I have seen, I think this is a good thing to mention, is that if a patient comes into the ED with an AKI, and it's often after hours, and it can be a Friday evening, so um, there's not a lot of medical staff around on the weekend, please make sure that the oral diuretics have not been routinely charted. Most of our patients are on routine oral diuretics, so that's your fruzamide and your spiro. Um, I have seen it happen where they're just routinely charted and we've got a person with an AKI and that is just making the situation much worse. So that's a good thing just for nurses to, to, to have, a, have a look at what, what has been charted. Is it, is it correct? Right, so we've really looked at all this, you know, complexity around the anatomy and the function and what happens when the liver isn't well. But your number five point, which is so critical, I guess, is around that the unwell liver patient has huge psychosocial factors that affect their quality of life and overall all life factors. Yeah, so... Liver disease, most of the common liver diseases are associated with a huge amount of shame for the patient. Uh, we're dealing with addiction issues. 
Um, and a lot of these patients, uh, this is something that has been going on for many years and because of their issues, they may have lost family and friends over the years. So they're often very socially isolated patients. Um, they're also, and I mentioned before, they're not old people. So some patients have been working up until a decompensation event. So these people have huge financial stresses that they're, that they're dealing with. Um, a lot of these patients have had traumatic childhoods um, or traumatic events happen during their lives and, and this has led to uh, the drug usage that has ultimately um, caused a liver disease. Um, and, and there's no doubt that they can be very challenging patients at times and they, they just require patience, kindness, just listen to them. Just never, just like in, with, any, with any patient in the ward, just, we need to see the patient before we see the disease. Um, just try and understand the person that's in front of you and what they may have been through. Um, a lot of the patients um, need social work support. So the social workers do a lot of work with our liver patients to try and get them benefits um, and appropriate housing. And you can also ask if they'd like to see a psychologist. There are some patients that really benefit from that. And also important to know, and I suppose this is why these podcasts are so valuable, there's a team of experienced liver nurses just around the corner that often know these patients really well. Um, please call us and we'll come and sit with them and, and um, we'll do whatever we can to help. One thing that in terms of communication that just seems to be a great technique is keeping your questions open and being really aware of inferences that might be layered into your questions. So I found a great rapport opening question to be, what do you do when you're not in here? Rather than what do you do for work or uh, like those other questions that you just can unknowingly kind of hit them right where there's a significant stress point. It also can potentially uh, close off an area of conversation that you might not be equipped to deal with yourself as a bedside nurse, particularly as a junior nurse, where if you do accidentally open up a massive discussion about financial stress, loss of income, loss of identity, how do you maintain rapport when you don't feel like you've got the skills to have that conversation? So keeping those sorts of things in. I've hit a few brick walls where people just got nothing sit on the couch, watch TV and you're like, what do you watch? Whatever's on. And you're like, oh, yeah. we can have a working relationship, but I don't <laughs> think we can be friends. Yeah, I think they're, you know, I'm trying not to generalise, but they can be very guarded people. Just be, recognise that and, and work out your approach going in. You can do a lot of damage with saying something off the cuff really quickly and you've lost them. I use a lot of sport inferences. Mm. I'm sport mad myself and so, um, you know, Sometimes patients have easily identifiable things on them that you know what they're into. So a lot of our patients are into their race cars. They wear the T-shirt or the hat. You know straight away a patient comes into the clinic and they've got a Rabbitohs jersey on. So you start talking about Luttrell. You know, you can there's, – there's, there's ways to build rapport bef before you get down to the illness. Mm. Um, and that is something that is learnt – you, you really get better with that over time. Experienced nurses, it takes, it takes years to get those skills really refined. You certainly know when you've got them um, and they make a big difference to people's lives. 
nobody has ever woken up and, and consciously thought to themselves, I'm going to put myself on a horrific pathway of no return <laughs> and I really want to suffer in a hospital bed at some day. Like no one does that and these these things, you know, like it does creep on, up on people and often they don't know how sick they are until they're locked into a, a terrible trajectory. Yeah, that's right. And we deal with a lot of people that have terrible addictions and they're very honest that they're never going to be able to stop drinking, for example. And so my strategy is, um, okay, we know you're not going to be able to stop drinking. We'll try and work on some reduction because we know that alcohol reduction um, has benefits. But then it's about, I say to them, okay, well, this is what we can do. Mm. We can make sure you eat the best diet that you can eat to stay strong. Mm. Um, We can make sure that we try and reduce a lot of the salt in your diet. Um, So there's things that you can really optimise to still optimise their life. Mm. Ultimately, unfortunately, these patients die. We deal with a lot of death in the liver clinic. Um, And it's about not judging them, being there for them, you can't solve all of their problems, but um, we get to know that a lot of patients really well. Um, they almost become like family to us. Mm. A lot of our patients ring the liver nurses daily just for some brightness. It's an amazing role that I'm in. I'm very lucky to do what I do. I really love it. It sounds like a very powerful connection that for some people, some of these liver patients, you're the only kind of outside influence, contact, care that's going on in their lives. Okay, so much important information today. I'm going to try and summarise your five points. So the first thing is, is the liver has a number of important functions. So if we're going to really just try and condense that down, what it does, it offers filtration, digestion, metabolism, protein synthesis, storage and excretion. So it's a really vital organ. Number two is that there are several pathways that you can get liver disease. The first one is from excessive alcohol. The second is fatty liver and that's often, you know, lifestyle factors uh, and associated with obesity. And the third is viral hepatitis. And the really important thing is, is that anyone has exposed, you know, prolonged exposure to any one of those or a combination of those, it can lead to irreversible liver damage or cirrhosis And once a person is cirrhotic, the risk of liver cancer is really increased. So once someone has a diagnosis of cirrhosis, they should have no alcohol whatsoever, uh, ideally, and that they need to be on a regular liver cancer screening. Your number three was explaining about the difference between compensated cirrhosis and decompensated cirrhosis. Uh, The important thing here is that With compensated cirrhosis, if it's detected and treated early, we can save a number of healthy liver tissue. Uh, If that disease is not managed well, people progress to something called decompensated cirrhosis and this is where the liver is really scarred and no longer able to work well and we'll start to see people have significant health injuries uh, and we'll also see that there's often secondary organ involvement. The number four is really when you've got someone with a decompensated liver that is in hospital, it's really critical that the bedside nurse is aware of a number of things. This is a very sick and complex patient and these are very frail patients so they're 
They're high risk for falls. Uh, they're often having to go to the bathroom a lot, so we need to keep a close eye on them, especially any time they're moving in a, or up and around over around the bedside. Um, they've often got very poor skin integrity, so we've got to really watch those lines. This sort of patient cannot cope with an infection, so please keep a close eye on them. And that these patients need a really comprehensive stool charts in the morning during that ward round. The doctors will really need to know and the liver team uh, what's happened with their stools overnight, what the stool chart is saying. They need um, early weight first thing in the morning so that we're able to understand their fluids, uh, what's going on, if they need changes to medication and they need an OBS chart particularly because we're looking if someone's febrile. I just wanted to pick up on it because it escaped me during the podcast but also keeping a close eye on changes in mental state and behaviour with these patients as well and triggering a, a delirium screen and, and further mental state exam as, as required with that because you can have a behavioural declaration of a serious um, decompensation and we can see that progression of hepatic encephalopathy that Olivia talked about. So yeah, for AT screening, your even just at a basic level of is there a change in behaviour and mental state? Yeah, and we always remember to ask our families, have you noticed something different? Great point. Thanks, Jesse. And number five is really these liver patients, you know, patients who've got significant liver di- disease have huge psychosocial factors. Um, that shame is often a really um, terrible you know, thing that people have to live with. Uh, there's often a lot of addictions. These patients, because of their lifestyle and things that have happened, are often quite isolated from family and friends. Tragically, many of these patients are still young in their 40s and 50s. Uh, Sometimes with their first crisis, this is the first time they may realise they may not be able to go back to work. Uh, So they'll have devastating, uh, you know, financial consequences. They've often come from a history of trauma, so we need to be using trauma-informed care and, as always, be extremely compassionate, understand everyone's got a story, um, and that these patients are often well-known to the liver team, so please involve them when they're on the ward. How did I go? It's really good, Liz. (laughs) (laughs) That was very stressful. That That was a really complex and interesting podcast. Thank you so much, Olivia Collin, for joining us on Five Things. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen, and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at fivethingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at Liz Crow 2 and for me it's inject underscore orange we would absolutely love to hear your thoughts ideas or feedback thanks for listening to five things 